Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 15. Picking up where we left off last week, uh, going through our series through the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33 and going through the end of that chapter. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Who doesn't like a good mystery story? The best ones, the ones that we tend to remember, are the ones where in the moment when everything seems like it's at its worst... When it's least likely for us to understand what's happening, when it's least likely for us to see that there is a good ending on the other side of it, all of a sudden the twist occurs and everything comes into focus. All of a sudden that tiny little bit of information is revealed. The climax happens. And then everything that you remember back from the story comes flooding in. You say, oh, how did I not see this coming? All the clues were there the whole time, but you didn't see them until right now. And then you think... I should have known. It was obvious. It was so obvious. How could it be any other way? In today's text, we're at what you might consider to be the darkest point in the entire passage. Jesus was crucified last week, but he was still alive. This week he's died. He's dead. It's the end, or so it seems, so it appears. But I think that Mark is giving us clues, even in this text, even in these verses, that if we understand the fullness of the story, we would look back and think, oh, how did we not see this coming? When we know how the story ends, that that though Jesus dies in Mark 15, he comes back to life in Mark 16. When we know that truth, we're able to see these gospel clues. When we find out that what, Mark, uh, what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we know that that is true, 
we're able to see how that worked even in the unfolding of the story itself. We're able to see that exchange that takes place, that Jesus takes our sin and dies with it. That all who repent and believe in his gospel, calling him Lord and master of our lives, that we might receive his righteousness in the place of our sin. Mark gives us three gospel clues from the death of Jesus that we'll see today. See today. First of all, Jesus received our sin. That's the first gospel clue that we'll see in these verses, that Jesus received our sin. Our sins were placed on him. While Christ was on the cross, even the land seemed to be cursed. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Just as our darkness was being placed on Jesus, God cast darkness over Jerusalem as a picture of what was happening. From around noon to 3 p.m., that's the sixth hour to the ninth hour. From around noon to 3, which would typically be the brightest part of the day. It's noon, it's afternoon. It might as well have been nighttime there in Jerusalem. You see, it was against the natural order for the righteous and innocent Jesus to be put on a cross with the sins of the world reckoned to him. So now, even the natural order is rebelling against that truth. It's reflecting the upside-down nature of what's happening. In the middle of the day, it is as dark as night. This also shows the severity of the judgment that was being dealt with here. If you remember back when God was delivering his people out of Egypt in Exodus... The central saving event of the entire Old Testament. He sent ascending plagues against the Egyptians. One after the other. And you know what the ninth plague was? The one right before the end. It was darkness. Darkness covered the entire land. Because, the, because Pharaoh wouldn't allow the Israelites to leave. The plagues got worse and worse. Until you got darkness. But what came immediately after the darkness? The death of the firstborn. That which was the inciting event for the salvation of God's people came immediately after the darkness. So though we do see the darkness, though we do see that the way that our sin is being placed on Jesus and how upside down that is, how upside down that feels, it actually should call to our mind that on the other end of this darkness is salvation for God's people. That there's something waiting for them on the other end of this. Just as something is waiting for us on the other end of the death of Jesus, there's something waiting for us on the other end of this darkness that covered the land. It's a sign of how bad things had gotten. In darkness, Jesus was until he died. So again, here in Mark, we're able to see God bringing salvation to his people through the death of a firstborn, which occurs just after darkness has covered the land. But this time, God isn't saving his people through the death of many firstborn sons. He's not saving his people through the death of mere men. He is providing salvation for his people. Their enemies. And his. Through the death of his own firstborn. He's provided that which is sacrificed. He's provided the substitute who dies in their place. That his people may be delivered from their slavery of sin and death. And he's able to do that because Jesus bore the curse for us, his people. When they crucified Jesus on the cross, they were killing him in such a way that he took the curse from the Old Testament law onto himself. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
Paul is hearkening back to Deuteronomy 21, where it says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Since Jesus was crucified in this way, hung on a tree, under normal circumstances, we would look at him in his death and say that he was cursed by the law of God. That God was his enemy, that he was against him. But because of Jesus' perfect life, where we would normally point at him and say that he must have been cursed by God to die in such a way, instead, now, we point to the curse and acknowledge that though there was a curse placed on him, it wasn't his curse, it was ours. Though he received our punishment, our curse, to himself through his death, it wasn't his curse. It wasn't him being judged by God as if he were guilty. It was him receiving what was justly put on us. The darkness in this verse that we see shows us that our sin has been placed on Jesus. But we can also see that he's received our sin from the very words of Jesus. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. You see, they misheard him. He said, Eloi, Eloi, and they thought, maybe he's saying Eli. Eli, there was a common belief that Elijah would come up and help the prophets of God in their final hours, that when they were at their worst, that Elijah would appear to be able to administer to their needs. So they heard it and thought, oh, maybe he's calling for Elijah to come down and save him. So they take sour wine and put it on a reed and give it to him. And that's significant because if you remember last week, he was offered wine in our text, right? Wine mixed with myrrh. It was meant to dull his senses, to ease his pain, and he refused it. But this wine, this sour wine, was a vinegar mixture. It was functionally like a first century Gatorade, that he might receive it and be able to live just a little bit longer, that he would continue to do his work on the cross. He denied that which would make his suffering less and accepted that which would prolong it. But why is he saying these things? It had been dark for three hours. He had been hanging there for at least three hours, possibly more. And Mark gives us the only words from Jesus on the cross in his gospel. Jesus said other things on the cross. We know from the other gospel accounts. But this phrase is all Mark highlights. He's speaking in Aramaic and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for most of us, this is probably one of the most confusing passages. It's certainly one of the most hotly debated things that Jesus ever said. What does he mean here? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What could that mean? What does it mean? I hope to be able to bring you some clarity here by first of all saying what it doesn't mean. What it can't mean. What it doesn't mean is that the son on the cross was abandoned and on his own. It doesn't mean that the Father and the Spirit somehow ditched him while he was on the cross. That there were functionally only really two members of the Trinity who were still in good community with the other two. As though the Son was on his own. It doesn't mean that one of the three persons of the Trinity was sinful here. That he could no longer continue in community with the other two. Because God is one. He can't break from himself. Even Jesus on the cross was still God the Son in heaven. So what does it mean? 
in what way can Jesus truly say that God has forsaken him? I mean, if we just have to delete these words from Scripture, which we don't do with anything else in all of Scripture, and we're certainly not going to do it here, if we just have to delete them, if that idea is wrong, how can we possibly sing that line that we sing so often in How Deep the Father's Love for Us, where it says, The Father turned his face away. If that weren't true in any sense, we wouldn't sing that song. We wouldn't read these verses. But we don't determine truth. Scripture does. So how can we say those words and yet also say that Jesus wasn't on his own, that he hadn't been forsaken by God? We can sing that line and believe that truth of Scripture, first of all, because in some sense, Jesus had our sin placed on him. That doesn't mean that there was a break within the Trinity. That doesn't mean that God the Father and God the Son were no longer still both gods on the same team, both the one God on his team fix that for you. That's not what it means. Yet, Jesus had our sin placed on him. Jesus is both divine and human. He is God and man united in one person. But not everything we say about one of his natures has to apply to the other one. I mean, when Jesus sleeps, we understand that that's referring to his humanity, right? God doesn't sleep. So when we read that Jesus is forsaken, that sin has been placed on him, we have to read that as referring to his humanity. We can't read that as referring referring to his divinity. God can't have sin on himself. God can't forsake himself. He can't abide with sin. Yet Jesus, the man, was experiencing sin accounted to him for the first time. So it looks, it seems... As if he is being forsaken, even though he's not actually, truly being abandoned by God. And I can say that as confidently as I just did. Because when Jesus says these words, he's quoting something. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And I'm going to read that entire chapter. I don't usually take the time to be able to do something like that apart from our text. But I'm going to read that entire chapter. Because when you read it, it starts with this question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But notice where the text ends, the trajectory of the text. I'm going to read the whole chapter here. And notice as you follow along how clearly this tracks with what's happening to Jesus in our text today. Psalm 22, the entire thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you as I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That's Psalm 22. When he is quoting the first verse, he's calling to mind, and everyone who hears that, all of Psalm 22. It begins with the Messiah appearing to be forsaken by God, with the Messiah in suffering. But it continues on. It ends in the salvation of God's people. It goes through the entire verse from all the afflictions that we see, all the direct parallels that we see that Scripture is fulfilled in the death of Jesus. They cast lots for his clothing. They pierce his hands and feet. He is surrounded and scorned and mocked by men. And yet it ends triumphantly. It ends in victory. It even explicitly says in verse 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. It says that though it appears as if the Messiah has been rejected by God, God hasn't hidden his face from him. The psalm ends in victory and salvation. It's telling them and us who now read it that though it appears as if Jesus is losing, though it appears as if Jesus is forsaken by God and rejected, it's actually at this moment that God is with him as he victoriously conquers sin and death, as he brings about the salvation that we see at the end of the psalm. And all of this is possible. Jesus is able to do these things because he has borne our sins and he has died in our place. If he hadn't borne our sins, he would never have died. Back to Mark 15, look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Death came into the world through sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God told them now they would die. Were it not for sin, death would never have existed. But death is just the byproduct, the end result of that sin. So for Jesus, who never sinned, who didn't inherit our sin, 
For him to die, it's only possible because our sins have been placed on him. Were it not for our sins on Jesus, death would never have happened. Because death only comes through sin. And that resulted in the tearing of the temple curtain, verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, this curtain being torn removes the barrier between God who dwells on earth and his people. Up to this point, worship, sacrifices, God's presence, they had a specific place on earth. They were in the temple. They were in the Holy of Holies. You wanted to be in God's presence, you had to go to that space, that one specific location. Though God is omnipresent, he is everywhere. There was something special about that place that you might be able to meet with the presence of God in that way. But now, the curtain that separated that place from the outside world, that place from everywhere else, that has been torn in two from top to bottom. His presence isn't confined to a specific location, but it's now in and among God's people. They don't have to go to a certain place undergo certain cleansing rituals with specific sacrifices to be in his presence. They have full access to him everywhere, at all times. Those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth, not on some specific mountain somewhere. It's brought about by his death, by the the tearing of the temple curtain. And that word torn in verse 38, it's only used in one other place in the book of Mark. Way back in Mark chapter 1, Verses 9 through 11, where it says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. See, Jesus' ministry began with the heavens being torn open, that God's presence would dwell among his people on earth. And at the end of Jesus' life, through his death on the cross, the curtain is torn open that God's people on earth might dwell in his presence. It was torn in the beginning that God's presence would come down, and it's torn at the end that we might enter into his presence. That access, that opportunity is purchased because Christ's death is the once and for all sacrifice which allows sinful people like us to come before God. Sinful people like us to be in his presence. In the Holy of Holies. Not because of our holiness, but because of His. Mark's account of Christ's death shows us over and over that when Jesus died, He died with our sins placed on Him. That He's dying the death we should have been dying. That He's dying the death in our place. He received our sins. But Mark gives us more gospel clues in this passage. He tells us that all people will acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. All are going to acknowledge Him. And that starts with the Roman centurion, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This man was a soldier and he was there to oversee the crucifixions. He may have even been the one there carrying them out. Nailing the hands and feet to the cross. He was a Roman soldier, a Gentile. He had no affinity for the God of the Jews. There was no soft spot in his heart for these plucky disciples of Jesus. For him, Jesus is just another Friday. Just another week doing his job. And when this thing starts, Jesus for him is one more Jewish rebel who's being killed for trying to start an uprising. 
But while Jesus is on the cross, something happens. Through his demeanor, his words, the way he handles his suffering, the way that he's praying for the forgiveness of those who are killing him, the way he's offering salvation to one of the other men on the cross who at one point was mocking him, but eventually came around himself. Something about this Jesus causes this Roman centurion to no longer be able to deny it. He says, truly, this man, this Jesus, was the Son of God. Now, we don't know if the centurion was coming to faith in Jesus, if he was having some sort of conversion moment. He may have been just trying to count Jesus among the demigods in the Roman religion, like he was Hercules. But what he says is true. Jesus is the Son of God, truly, absolutely. And all people, Roman centurions... Jewish scribes and middle-class Arkansans will one day see him for who he is. Will acknowledge him as Lord. That's the gospel clue that Mark gives us. That all people will acknowledge him for who he is. But the centurion wasn't the only one seeing Jesus for who he was in that moment. Look at the next verses. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When you're reading this text, these verses kind of seem out of place, don't they? I mean, Jesus is dying by crucifixion. Mark has given us a fairly gruesome account of his death. The blood, the flogging, the crown, the spit, the punches. And here, between Christ breathing his last and being taken down from the cross and buried, Mark inserts just a a little aside, a few verses. Uh, Yeah, there were women there too. Mary, 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 and Salome. They've actually been with him this whole time, if you remember. It's a curious inclusion. But I think Mark tells us this for two reasons. One, he's simply highlighting this aspect of Jesus' ministry. Women were an important part of everything he was doing from the beginning. They were always with him. He didn't just have men in his entourage. He wasn't just worried about training and discipling men. Men aren't the only ones who have a part to play in the church of Jesus that he came to build. And Mark wants to make sure that his readers are aware of the women's importance here. Not only did they just show up at the end, they were with him all along. And he introduces them particularly here because, spoiler alert, these same women are going to be really important here in just a few verses. At the beginning of Mark chapter 16, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they're going to be actually very key players to what's happening here. So Mark has to introduce them. He introduces them in such a way that we're reminded of their faithfulness. He's highlighting the women here for the second reason, because the contrast is between them and the disciples. Do you remember why we aren't getting narratives, why we aren't getting little clues and details about what the disciples are doing during this whole time Jesus is on the cross? It's because of what they did when Jesus was arrested. They ran. They bolted. For the most part, they're just not around. But notice what Mark says about the women. They were here. They were watching. At a distance, yes, but they were still there. They had followed him from Galilee, and they followed him even to the end. Where the male disciples had failed, these women seemed to have remained faithful. 
You see, it's not just men who will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And it doesn't look like men always do a better job of following Jesus than women do. It looks like they were the example here of what faithfulness looked like. But there's one final character here that Mark introduces to show the extent of those who will acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the council. Which council? The Sanhedrin. The same ones who in Mark 14 had condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy. Joseph of Arimathea is one of those. He probably wasn't there that night voting to put Jesus to death. He probably missed that meeting. But he's part of them. Not only is he just in the group, but he's a respected member. He's no lackey. He's no second stringer or backbencher. He's one that they all think highly of. Joseph, if that was all the information you had about him, would be an enemy of Jesus, right? So we would assume that he would be glad that Jesus is dead. You would think that he should be among those other council members who were mocking Jesus while he was on the cross last week. But instead, he's buying a tomb. He's taking the courageous risk to ask Pilate for the body. And it was courageous because Jesus was killed as a rebel against Rome, killed for treason. If you go to the Romans, to Pilate, and you seem a little too sympathetic with him when you ask the Romans for his body, what you're doing is running the risk of being counted on the same team, possibly even committing the same crime. So why did Jesus do Why did Joseph do this? Well, Mark tells us. He was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. This man who should be Christ's enemy is treating the Messiah's body with reverence and respect. Because in his search for the kingdom of God, he found it in Jesus. In his readings, in his knowledge of the Jewish faith, while he was waiting for the coming son of God, for the Messiah, when Jesus did all that he did, Joseph came to believe in him. And out of respect for the one his group had killed, Joseph wanted to give Christ's body the dignity it deserved, according to the Jewish law, to give him the burial that he needed, even in death. We don't get Joseph's words acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God, but his actions show his reverence for Christ. Mark shows us with gospel clues that all people will acknowledge Jesus to be the Messiah and Son of God. All people. Those who were his enemies and killed him. Those who weren't respected by society but were faithful to him the whole time. Those who should be his enemies but couldn't deny who he was. All people will acknowledge Jesus to be the Messiah and Son of God who ushers in his kingdom by his life, death, and eventually his resurrection. But the final gospel clues that Mark gives us in these texts is his emphasis to show that Jesus really did die. When Christ was on the cross... He died. And I know that point may seem really obvious. You're reading the text. You're in church. You know, yeah, Jesus died. But his death is absolutely crucial. See, there's a somewhat popular theory that you'll hear floating around every once in a while that Jesus didn't actually die. That he basically just passed out. 
Like you'll hear stories of people accidentally burying someone alive even just a few hundred years ago. They had claw marks on the inside of the, the coffin. They had bells that they could pull a little tassel to be able to ring. As if that's what happened to Jesus. He swooned. He slipped into a coma maybe. They took him off the cross. They put him in a cool, damp tomb so he could rest. He took a short nap, a few days, and he got better. He ate some Wheaties. He rolled the stone away. He John wicked the guards while they were there, guarding the tomb. And he just fled. He bolted. He ran away. This Jesus who two days before was on a cross, crucified, after having been flogged, scourged, hit, spit on, dehydrated, crowned on his head for several hours... Assumed dead, two days later, he rolls his own stone away, beats up the guards, and gets out of there. That's obviously not what happened. That theory might be more popular if it weren't so patently stupid. But regardless of his existence, it's still important for us to emphasize that Jesus actually did die. You see, if Christ didn't die, then he didn't come back to life. If he didn't die, then he didn't accept the wages of your sin, which is death. If he didn't die, then there's no resurrection waiting for you because there was no resurrection of Jesus. If the gospel is going to be true, then Jesus had to die, truly, in reality. A real death by a real man. Or else this is all just theater. Or else we're all just wasting our time. To that end, Mark tells us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is really and truly dead. Absolutely. Pilate confirmed it. Verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. See, Jesus died faster than the average person on the cross, likely because he endured more than the average person before he was nailed up there. So Pilate doesn't just take Joseph's word for it. He calls in the centurion to make sure, the one who is overseeing it, maybe even the same one who declared that Jesus truly was the Son of God when he died. Pilate was skeptical that Jesus was dead until he confirmed it for himself. And Mark even makes the linguistic shift at this point to emphasize Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph, the rotting shell, the broken body, the decaying husk of Jesus was given to Joseph. And Joseph buried him. Verse 46, and Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Exceptional cases of being buried alive aside, who gets buried? Dead people. Joseph and a few helpers probably handled the body pretty intimately to know whether Jesus was still alive or not. He took the body down. Likely quickly washed it to clean the wounds and blood in line with Jewish practice at the time. He wrapped the body in cloth. He carried the corpse to the tomb. He placed it in it and sealed it just like you would as if someone was actually dead. Because Jesus was dead. The God of the universe who had taken on human form had humbled himself. Being obedient even to the point of death. And that on a cross. But that's not the end of the story. That's not where the narrative ends. Verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, 
saw where he was laid. The faithful women who Mark had introduced earlier, they saw where he was laid. So this yet again confirms his actual death, right? They saw Jesus, dead body, put in this tomb, this place. Joseph didn't take him down, discover he was alive, and then just hide him away somewhere. They buried him. And the women saw the place where he was laid. And that's a detail that wouldn't really matter in most stories. They saw the tomb. Why is Mark even telling us that? It's because in this story, it makes all the difference in the world. They noted the place where he was laid because they're coming back here to the same spot in a few days. So whenever they get there and Jesus isn't there, we know that they didn't get duped. It's crucial for us to see that Jesus bore our sins on the cross when he died. We have to recognize that all people will acknowledge him as Lord. Some in this life, some on the last day when he returns. But none of this matters if he doesn't actually die. We'll see next week, Mark 16, that none of it matters either if he doesn't come back. This is a story about a man who died. It's one of about... 10 billion that's happened. But if this is a story about a man who died and came back, it's special. It has meaning for us. If it's a story about a man who took our sins and came back to life, it's special. It's meaningful for us. If it's a story about a man who will be acknowledged by all people to be the God of the universe as Lord of the heavens, then it's meaningful for us. Because he died. He came back. He bore our sins. He died in our place. And he came back to live. He came back to life to give us new life. So the question now is what do we do with that information? Do we acknowledge him as Lord now, today? Do we repent and believe in his gospel today? Or do we refuse to submit our life to him? Though we see and hear the truth, though, though we've heard the gospel Do we deny its effect for us and in us? It's my prayer and my hope that confession, repentance, belief, faith, those are the responses of every person in this room when you hear the truth that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, but also that he was raised for your sins after three days according to the scriptures. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to hear these words in this place with your people. Thank you for the truth of your death. Thank you for that substitutionary death in our place. For paying the penalty that we should have paid. For dying the death we should have died. But ultimately, for coming back. For giving us the hope and promise of new life after death. That even in the moment when everything seems to be at its worst. Even in the moment when it appears as if the Son of God has been forsaken. As if he's lost. Let us know and trust that even in that moment, he has won. He's won the victory for us. That we might be able to receive it through repentance and faith. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.